This morning, we have the joy of welcoming a friend, a guest preacher, Pastor Ed O'Mara. Uh, he is the lead pastor of our, one of our sister churches, Cross Point Church in Arnold, Maryland. Uh, he served there for eight years. Uh, Ed and I uh, served together on, in a couple of different ways in our denomination. We served together on our National Court of Appeals. We also work closely with Sovereign Grace Emerging Nations that helps to train and support pastors across the world. Uh, Ed and his wife, Robin, have three children. Listen to these beautiful names, Tegan, Leoden, and Killian. He told me they were intentionally Irish, and so I think that those are just beautiful. And then one beloved dog that he says is psycho, their yellow lab Duncan. And so Ed is, uh, is with us today. His, his family is, is back in Maryland, so we are thankful that his family let him come here. He, since he's a long way from home, well, what happened was Ed has a wedding in Wisconsin, and we touched base, and so he generously offered to make the drive, which he did yesterday, and so he is uh, with us today to bring the word. So would you help me welcome Pastor Ed? Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you. I send greetings from Cross Point Church in Arnold, which is near Annapolis. Uh, it's a suburb of Annapolis, and Annapolis is such a small city that Arnold is in a tiny little suburb. Uh, you know, I guess you don't have big suburbs when you have a small city, but, uh, but it is a joy to be with all of you, uh, to be gathered together. I think if, if there's anything that our church is, uh, is really focused on now as a particular grace of God, it's the Sunday gathering, being together with God's people. Um, and the crazy COVID times in which we've been living, living through, and uh, Lord willing are coming to an end, has reminded us of how important it is for the saints to be gathered. And I could, I could palpably feel that here uh, as we're gathered together. Uh, and, uh, and it is a joy to be in partnership together as two local churches separated by uh, hundreds of miles. It's, it's a joy to, to know that the gospel is going forward here just as in our local church. And uh, just as I uh, feel your welcome, I want to extend my invitation to you. If you ever find yourself in the Annapolis area, Baltimore, Washington area, please come by and visit us. We would love to, uh, we would love to get to, to know you more personally. Well, we are here for the word of God. Uh, I'm going to be in 1 Timothy. We together are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bible there. Uh, if you don't have a, uh, a written uh, or an app on your phone or, or smart device uh, that has the, the scriptures, you can follow along. It will be on the screen behind me in just a few moments. Uh, as you're turning there, imagine for a minute this scenario that you save, you work hard, and you plan for your dream home. Seems like a very American thing to do. And on closing day, you take possession of the keys. Life is great for a year until one night you awake to loud, thunderous pops in the basement. You go downstairs and investigate and find all of a sudden enormous cracks in the foundation of your dream home. This is not an imaginary story. Hundreds of homes and their foundations in Connecticut are crumbling due to an element called pyrotite. And this is a picture of pyrotite, what it looks like. Pretty scary looking, actually. And when pyrotite gets in the cement, it breaks down and reduces cement essentially to rubble. The only fix for this is to lift the house, remove the foundation, and pour a new one. And on average, this costs 
about 65% of the home's value. And guess what? It's not insured. Foundations are pretty important, aren't they? The stability of a church, the stability of our life depends on our foundation, what we're built on. Paul wrote some letters to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, to focus on a sure foundation free of impurity. And the main point of the scripture that we're looking at today, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is build on the rock-solid foundation of the gospel. That's the point that he's driving at. And this sets up the entirety of the book. If you were to read the rest of the book, what he's, what he's driving at is to build on the rock-solid foundation of the gospel. See, what we believe determines how we build our lives. Think about that just for a moment. If, if money or success, or power is the anchor of your life, that's what you will build for. You'll, you'll pursue that as your chief end. Or if family or security or happiness is most important to you, you'll pursue that as your chief end. That will be the main thing. You will protect that at all costs. Now, most of us see the need to reject straight up false messages, things like materialism and self-rule and blatant sin, right? We, we see that those, are, those will cause cracks in the foundation. But the issue, and I think the issue that Paul's driving at in, in this letter is what about the good things of life? Things that aren't necessarily foundational, but they're, they're on the first floor. Things like family and education and success, They're important things. They're not wrong. They're just not foundational. Brothers and sisters, there's only one truth that is solid enough to build upon. It is the gospel of Jesus. Everything else will crumble. So as we prepare, as the Spirit of God prepares our hearts to receive this word, ask yourself this question, how am I building We need that evaluation over the construction project of our lives as we seek to build on the rock-solid foundation of the gospel. Let's hear and heed this word and trust that Jesus will lift us up and shore up our foundation through his holy and perfect word. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of Scripture. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, And of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly father, thank you that you see fit to save and you see fit to shore us up on a sure foundation. And you did that by speaking. You created by speaking. You gave your word to lead and guide your people. And you sent your son, the incarnate word, to save us. And now we have, as your church, your word to anchor us, Lord God, to reveal the gospel, to reveal Jesus Christ, to reveal your character. So we pray that we would behold the resurrected Savior, And that we would follow him as the Lord. And we pray that you would, Holy Spirit, come and minister and move. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. So that you might receive all glory as our lives are transformed, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, just by way of context, because this is the beginning of a book and it's sometimes helpful to understand how we got here. How did, how did this book get here, this letter get here? Well, this letter from Paul, it's both authoritative and pastoral. He calls himself an apostle, but he's speaking pastorally with great love and care to Timothy and to the church that Timothy pastors in Ephesus. Paul's apostolic call required him by God's command to preach the gospel and to establish churches. So he was mobile. He was going about on missionary journeys. And on his second missionary journey, we read about it in Acts chapter 16, Paul went through the area called Galatia to two cities, Lystra and Derbe. And you can see that on the map that we have there uh, for his second journey. And, And on that second journey, as he went through Lystra and Derbe, he met Timothy. Now, Paul instantly loved this young man, Timothy. He loved him as his own son, verse 2 says, my, my true child in the faith. And he invested in him. He, he gave his best to Timothy to strengthen Timothy and to disciple him. On that second journey, Timothy actually continued on with Paul from his own home city to as far as Berea. Well, Paul then continued on to Athens and Corinth, and then he went on into Ephesus. So timeline, that's roughly about 52 AD when Paul made his first visit to Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the five big cities of the Roman Empire. It had at that time roughly 330,000 people, which was quite an enormous city at that time. It was the capital of Asia, and Paul loved and deeply cared for the Ephesians. On his third journey, so after he, his completed second journey, when he went back on his third journey, he actually visited them twice. And Timothy accompanied Paul to Ephesus. So when Paul left for Macedonia, which is referenced here in this, this 
uh, scripture, he instructed Timothy to stay in Ephesus, the city that he loved. He instructed a man that he loved and he, he had invested so much into. That's what verse three is talking about. And he, he told him, teach the truth to these people that I care about. Guard the church from error. So after Paul's third journey, what happened in Paul's life? Well, he was arrested and then taken to Rome. But Paul always had both Ephesus and Timothy, their pastor, in his heart. And because of this, we have three incredible books that Paul has contributed to us. We have Ephesians, written in 61 AD. We have 1 Timothy, after Paul's first imprisonment, so that's roughly 62 AD when he wrote that. And then 2 Timothy, which was written during Paul's final imprisonment, 64-65 AD, roughly. So that's a bit of the context. Now, the aim of Timothy's ministry, Paul says, given by God and, and through the Apostle Paul, is to guard against false doctrine, against myths and genealogies, verse 4 says. What is that talking about? Well, the false doctrine, which we're actually going to discuss a little bit more in a moment, was constructing poorly built lives of speculation, verse 4, or you can kind of think of it as like a fruitless swirling. There was speculation. There was these things that were just causing them to sort of be like a gerbil running on a wheel, just kind of like going nowhere, but expending a lot of energy rather than a, a rightly ordered life of stewardship and well-built with faith in God. So Paul saw that and he said, no, that's, that's not right. Guard against that. Teach against that. Paul's charge, verses 3 and 5, is, is not harsh. It's in love from a pure heart, good or clean conscience and sincere faith. He, he loved, he cared for them. Every, every edict that he was going to issue, every command, every instruction that he was going to issue to this church through Timothy was because he loved them. He cared for them. So they and we should receive this word as we should with all of scripture, understanding that God's correction is love. He cares for us. The word of God is carefully crafted, even when it hurts us, to heal us, to strengthen us. So let's go to the specifics. What does that actually look like in this letter from Paul, this first letter from Paul to Timothy? The first thing he says is resist impure teaching. Back to a little bit of context. Ephesus was renowned for its pagan temple to Artemis or Diana, depending whether you're talking Greek or Roman mythology. And, and Artemis was, was the queen bee of the city. It's silver trade. The silver trade in, in Ephesus was really all about worship of Artemis. But it wasn't just pagans who were in the city. It wasn't just pagans there worshiping Artemis. Though people would come from all over the place to worship Artemis, they would actually take silver and and fashion it into these little idols. And then people would buy these idols, probably with silver coins. And then they would take the silver idols. They would go into the temple and they'd worship Artemis and, and give these little figurines in worship. And then the silversmiths would come and melt them down and make new figurines. So it was a total racket of silver going on there. But it wasn't just pagans in the city. There were also Jews that were in the city. There were many Jews there. And when Paul planted the church, 
you can imagine that there was a mix of converts that were coming in, as it should be, diverse people from diverse backgrounds. We love to see people from diverse backgrounds coming into the one and true kingdom of God. So Paul planted this church, and there were both Jewish converts and pagan converts. So it shouldn't be overly surprising to us that the temptations and the kind of impurity that got into the church were coming from different directions. Verse 4 identifies this as myths, which is talking predominantly about this pagan influence, and endless genealogies, which is a sort of nod to the kinds of Jewish um, uh, influence that was coming into the church. These endless, well, we'll get to that in a second. The pagan mystics were importing phenomenology, uh, spiritualism from Greek mythology, especially the, the cult of Artemis. But the Jews, what they were doing is they were detailing their pedigree as if their lineage somehow made them more acceptable to Yahweh. So they had kind of gotten off of the idea that Jesus is their acceptance. And they're like, yeah, well, yeah, Jesus is my acceptance, but, but I'm, a, I'm a Jew that comes from this pedigree. I was the kind of thing. And there was fraction, fractioning or, or uh, factions forming within the, the life of the church over these impurities. Both sides, Paul says in verse six, are guilty of swerving from the foundation that was laid by Paul when he planted the Ephesian church. Both sides were caught up in vain discussions as their hope for life. That's why in verse one, Paul says, it is Jesus alone who is our hope. So he's setting the table right in verse one. Jesus is our hope. And then he goes right at these impure doctrines that were defiling the church. See, any additive to the foundation of Christ is impurity. It's like pyrotite and cement. It causes crumbling. It, it can cause crumbling at Cross of Grace Church when something or someone other than the centrality of Jesus Christ in his gospel is functioning here in the church. Note the word choice that Paul uses. People have swerved and turned aside the Greek there means that they are missing the mark by being pulled to the side. In other words, pay attention because this is not an about-face sort of situation. They're drifting. Drifting is insidious. It's dangerous because you don't notice it. I recently had my car realigned. I was noticing a drift to the left. And in Maryland, pretty much all the roadways are kind of like two-lane highways with, you know, the, the roads are right next to each other. So if you're not paying attention for a minute, like say, for instance, if you look down at your phone, which you should never do, by the way, and if you do that, that is an impurity in your driving theology. But if you were to just take your eyes off the road and just lose concentration for a second and your, your alignment's not good, you're going to drift over. And I would be drifting over, in my case, into the left lane, head-on collision, you know, that's often how we are infected as Christians. Have you thought about that? That we, we tend to subtly drift. We suddenly pulled from the center. And oftentimes it comes by putting hope in good, but not foundational issues. Follow this logic for a second. Look, at, look who Paul actually lays this on. 
teachers of the law, he says in verse seven. The drift he's talking about, he says, you who are trying to teach the law. In other words, he's most likely speaking of the Jewish contingent. To straighten out the church, straighten out the church in Ephesus, these these people were laying particular regulations on the backs of their brethren. I mean, they seem to be well-meaning, but just ignorant. And Paul says to them, you have no understanding. They spoke confidently and thereby were creating a new law or a new moral code through which people must act in order to be faithful. Now, we might think that Paul's solution to this is to abandon any laws, abandon all rules or personal convictions. If the problem is that they're laying the law on people, let's just get rid of the law. Like, just focus on Jesus, just focus on grace. Look at verse eight. The very next phrase he says, the the next thought he connects is, we know that the law is good provided one uses legitimately. What does it mean to use the law legitimately? Well, he goes on to talk about this, but just from a high level, John Calvin um, is very helpful in, in helping to us understand how the law can be used legitimately. It has three functions. This isn't the order that he normally presents this in, but just for the sake of this sermon, the first function is flourishing of society. The law promotes a right and just and orderly society. Scripture's ethic, in other words, is the best way forward. The way Scripture teaches us to live, it's just good for us to live that way. This is not a popular idea. I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is not like, you don't have people on you know, Fox and CNN going, rah, rah, yes, live according to the Bible. But it's true. The best way forward for humankind is to honor God's law. Secondly, another legitimate use of the law is the law is a mirror. And this is particularly talked about in this text. The law reveals that we cannot measure up. We need a savior. Paul says to Timothy, the law is not laid down for the just, but for sinners, the ungodly. The law is a mirror that shows us we can't do it on our own. And that's what Paul's addressing in verses nine and 10. The law is given by God. And it names the sin of sinners, the disobedient, the lawless, verse nine. It shines light into the dark reality that, hey, apart from God, you are not okay. That's the second use of the law. The third, which is closely connected, is the law also reveals what pleases God. See, the law is a guide or a model for we who are already saved to know what our lives should look like. The law of God rightly understood shapes and transforms us by grace and through the work of the Spirit. That's why the Word of God is so important to us, to to be in the Word of God. It, It gives us a, it etches out the picture of the reality of who Christ is making us to be. So in light of that, look what Paul does in verses 9 and 10. Look how verses 9 and 10 parallel the commands Commands five and nine, five through nine of the Ten Commandments. Paul kind of puts the Ten Commandments up alongside of his sort of paraphrastic use of these areas, and he and he. We're not going to go into all these particulars, but do you understand what Paul's doing as he does this? He's saying, "Listen, God's law is sufficient. It does not need our help." When we add to it or subtract from it, we're adding impurity and causing drift 
toward peril. We're actually making the law something less powerful than what God intended it to be. So it begins to beg questions for us. How does this relate to me? Are there ways that you add or subtract to God's law? Are there passions and positions that you hold as standards of righteousness that, you know, this is not always blatant to us. Let me give you an example of this. I have a friend, pastor friend, who is extremely convicted of Sabbatarian practices, that on Sunday, that's the Lord's day, and and on Sunday, it should look this way. It's a good idea. It's a right biblical thought. However, at times, my friend has spoken of this to others in ways that have put a pressure on them to repeat his practices. And without thinking through and developing their own biblical convictions, I have other friends who go to this person's church who adopt these practices without thinking through them, without really the personal conviction. And they just say, well, I'm going to do this because such and such pastor has said, this is the way I need to do it. My friend, and we've talked about this, so I'm not saying something to you I haven't first said to him, has laid on his dear brothers and sisters, a burden that's not necessarily a burden of grace, but a burden of law. See, a good metric to see if that's happening in our life, to see where we are on adopting practice over the grace of God is to see where we are so passionate to defend or pursue a standard or a practice. If, if every conversation turns back to this practice, is, is your passion for anything greater than or detached from the gospel of grace? It shows up in micro divisions between you and others over secondary issues. So you might be thinking of a brother or sister here in this room. I don't know the situation. So if this applies to you, take that as the spirit of God speaking to you and not from me. But if, if there are micro divisions between you and a brother and sister, like, oh, they, they're going to come to the second service. And I'm kind of glad that I don't see them because we just don't see eye to eye on you fill in the blank. It may look like you must belong to a certain political party. You must court and not date. You must educate in a certain way. You must view vaccination the same as me or have the same policy on alcohol or movies or dress. See, when these divisions occur, we we tend to be judging and separating ourselves from others because they're not lockstep with us on secondary issues. They're important, but they're secondary. In other words, in that moment, we have moved impurity into the foundation. You know, it's often matters of conscience that trip us up. We tend to take debatable and preferential issues where scripture is not explicit and make unspoken laws about these things. Now, most of us are pretty sophisticated, right? We're sophisticated enough to say, well, I'm not making a law for other people. I'm just picketing and proclaiming loudly and confidently and thereby shifting the focus from Jesus, right? It's moving practice and attitudes into the lane of seeking righteousness by behavior. Brothers and sisters, at heart, all of us are legalists. All of us are moralists. All of us try to get to God by our works. So all of us need this word. 
we all need to have our foundation shored up. Importing anything into our relationship with God weakens our foundation and it weakens our church foundation. How then do we build on a right foundation? Let's look at the next point. We build on gospel truth. We must guard against impurity. We must also, we must also understand how to build rightly. The issue at hand is that the teachers of the law in Ephesus were combining two uses of the law. The law that revealed our lostness, they said, try to be right with God by keeping these laws. In other words, they were claiming that justification, which is God's legal declaration of forgiveness, was really just a process of growing more holy by practice, by behavior, which is something that we know to be called sanctification when kept in the right categories. See, this is a lie. To blur these two together is a lie, and it's dangerous. We must get these categories correct. Justification is all, always, and only of grace. We are saved by God's merciful grace. Grace. It is by faith, verse 1 says, alone. Full stop. To be saved and to be right with God is founded solely then on the perfect and complete work of Jesus on our behalf. Not by our works. It is not based on do's and don'ts. It is based on Jesus and his perfect righteousness. So the foundation must be Jesus and his gospel of grace alone. That's what Paul's saying in verse 11. The gospel then is the good news that God in and through Christ alone made it possible for dead sinners to find hope, verse one, and grace and mercy and peace, verse two. That alone is the only way to have true and right foundation. So the first application question to attend to is this. What do I count as the ground for my acceptance before God? Maybe you're, you're here and you're, you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian or maybe you're looking to faulty things. Hear, hear these questions and these statements. If you're looking to your lineage, I grew up in a Christian home or to your actions, I go to church, I try to be good. All of that amounts to nothing in gaining right standing. The only way to be right with God is to receive the gracious gift and blessing of God. In other words, forgiveness through Christ and his gift of new and eternal life. So if you, no matter where you come from, whether you are a good church kid or the most immoral person that you know in your life, if you want the gift of forgiveness, it is yours for the taking simply by putting your faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ who died once and is now reigning in heaven because he shed his blood to make any who want it clean. So brother and sister, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be justified before God, you can be today simply by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus as the Lord and Savior. We move then from there as believers when we become Christians, we receive forgiveness with the surety of eternal life and the fullness of God's Spirit enters into our life. And in the power of the Spirit, the moment we become Christians, transformation of life begins to occur. So the right use of the law, by grace, still by grace, not 
first and foremost by our effort, but still by grace and still in the power of the spirit is, is a guide. The law is now a guide and a standard for how we are to grow into the image of Jesus. It etches out, it's a replica of heavenly things and it etches out a picture of the perfection of Jesus, who we are becoming. This, brothers and sisters, is a day-by-day work of the spirit. In other words... Jesus didn't save us for stagnancy. He saved us to be like himself. If if you're a Christian and you hear that statement and it doesn't cause little fireworks in your heart, just meditate on that. Meditate on the gospel and meditate on the truth just for maybe this is the work of your quiet time this week. Jesus saved us to be like himself. We get to be transformed to be more like Christ. That is an amazing grace statement. Brothers and sisters, we are not going to be who we once were. We are going somewhere. We are going to be more like Christ. Sanctification is a roller coaster ride of joy. And you know, though we add nothing to our righteousness because it's all of Jesus' perfection by grace through faith, all of God, all as a gift, as his saved ones, we get to press on into conformity. You know, I love how scripture pictures that for us. We're the handiwork of God, Ephesians says. Ephesians, the book that Paul wrote to this city that he loves so much where Timothy was pastoring. We are created to shine God's image See, biblical Christianity is not easy believism. As reformed Christians, we need to fight that at times, I think, where we think about the, the, the gospel as merely a doctrinal statement. It is not just believe this truth. It is life. It is vibrancy. We are being transformed by the foundational truth of the gospel. It applies, it motivates, it moves us, it empowers us. Glory to God for that reality. And it also begs us to ask a question then. Am I denying the power of the gospel to transform me because I'm not really submitted to Jesus? I am submitted to some true statements, but my actual life, are there pockets where... They're not really submitted to Christ. The answer for all of us is yes, because we're all a work in um, process. But ask yourself, am I plying myself to reject evil and press into the work of God? Not work to become acceptable, but a reflection of the lavish acceptance of Jesus for you. Let's get down more into the nuts and bolts. Does your media intake reflect the work of Jesus? Do you speak like Jesus? Are you flippant? Maybe even using coarse joking and rough language at times. Not too long ago, I had a a time with a group of brothers in in my church, and we were laughing and having a a great time, having a real good time. It it was a, a night where I probably hadn't laughed that hard in maybe five years it was such an incredible time. But something about me, about my personality, about who I am and, and, and how I can at times be sinfully drawn is I, I constantly want to push the envelope and just keep pressing into realms that are edgier and edgier and 
inappropriate and therefore sinful. And I, I kept doing that with my speech to be funny. I mean, it wasn't blatant sin. It wasn't something that would be filtered off of even, you know, primetime television, which is, can be very coarse at times. But I knew that I in my heart was pressing that line. And the next morning in my quiet time, I read the verse. It's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out that defiles. I knew that the Spirit of God was convicting me that I wasn't building on the gospel. We were having a great time laughing together, fellowshipping as brothers, and I was pushing for something else, trying to introduce some impurity. So I needed to seek their forgiveness. What does that look like for you? It may not be the exact same category, but there's probably some parallel. Are there ways perhaps that you use, you look at money as a a tool for self-comfort and self-promotion? Are there ways that you allow sin, sin to linger in your living room while claiming that Jesus is the foundation? See, brothers and sisters, these are important questions, not because they're the foundation of our salvation. Indeed, only Jesus is. But these are treasures and the beauty of life as we are constructed by God. These these are ways in which God is transforming us and adorning us with gospel fruit. Think about that for a moment. When you have somebody, a visitor, come over to your house or you go to visit somebody else's house, where is it that you hang out? Even if you're hanging out at the most foundational level of the house, isn't isn't wherever you hang out adorned with certain things, right? There are carpets and furniture and all sorts of niceties and comforts. What adorns the gospel in the people of cross of grace is the effects of the gospel, how the gospel transforms us. Love, works of kindness, self-control, holy and pure living, That's the sign of a gospel-built life. A gospel-built life is an increasingly transformed life. And if we are building on the gospel of grace, it will show in categories of graciousness and peace and kindness and love. And the world will see that. And Cross of Grace Church, you will see that in your brothers and sisters. And it will strengthen you. Your foundation will have less impurity every day and more and more shoring up in the gospel of Jesus Christ as you cooperate with the spirit of God to be transformed by the word of God and the spirit of God at work. So brothers and sisters, as we come to a close, I want to encourage you, encourage us, commit to guard against any impurity in the foundation of your life and of the church that you hold dear. Only a life built on truth will stand strong. The truth we must build on is always, and it must be the gracious gospel. And in the gospel, we have the surety of being sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ so that even the foulest sinner is made clean. That means there's nothing you can or must do to be acceptable before God. Let that truth be the center from which we strive, and I mean strive, to never swerve 
and, and never do anything to make impure, such that we return to God over and over in gratitude and in praise for who he is and what he's accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Let it be that our lives reflect the gospel and that, that the gospel functions in us to produce fruit so that by the Spirit's power, we are following a path of obedience. Brothers and sisters, our spiritual worship is a life reflecting God's holy law. As we build on the rock-solid foundation of the gospel, we will, because God is good, experience deeper joy, more abiding fellowship, and a surer confidence in life's joys and trials. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you are a good and gracious God, pure in all of your ways. Thank you that you are work at work here at Cross of Grace. Lord God, I pray that you would convict where conviction is necessary, strengthen where strengthening is necessary. Lord, and that for any that might feel a sense of condemnation, drive it out by your spirit. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cannot be made righteous by our work. So let us not be condemned where we are failing, but let us run to the cross and find forgiveness and the strength to move forward for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.